Well, you can keep your Bibles open to Luke. Just turn over to chapter 10. We'll be right there in Luke 10 this morning. And welcome to Berean Bible Church on Palm Sunday. It's good to have you here with us this morning. It's a great time to, to praise the Lord. On our Christian calendar, this is a week of fireworks. Today marks the beginning of the end of our Savior's ministry, as we had just read. He sits on the, that colt, the foal of a donkey, and rides down from the east. He rides west, headed toward Jerusalem, down toward the city, looking at Jerusalem. Five days from now, history records that Jesus Christ will be crucified. And we remember, as we watch even uh, the representation in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, and we read the narrative accounts, we remember the agony and the pain of his ministry. This, this was not an easy ministry that was handed to him. Next, we celebrate the, the greatest day in Christianity. Next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. The, the greatest hope of all of our faith to be resurrected with Christ, even as we sang about it this morning. That's the grandest of the fireworks show that we'll see over the course of the next week. Satan and death are defeated perfectly by the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So when was the last time I would ask you that you got a chance to see a fireworks show? Was it at the 4th of July down at Pismo Pier? Was it a, a fireworks show that would have happened at New Year's? Do you ever think that they last long enough, these fireworks shows? They seem brief compared to all the, the hype and the circumstances that surround fireworks. There's a lot of uh, uh, attention that's get put into it by young families that would attend them. You know, the, the carrying of the chairs and the food that you bring down, putting the babies in both arms and making your way to a fireworks show. The moment is sure fun when you're thinking about fireworks, but it comes with pain and work and sometimes tense moments. And as we're thinking about a week of fireworks that are happening, we're going to go to a text that talks about fireworks. And I want to share with you the, the Jones's favorite set of fireworks happens up at Priest Lake in North Idaho. It happens around 9 o'clock, 9.30 at night. And we load the family up in the boat. We put licorice and popcorn, freshly popped, as we're staying on the island, and put sleeping bags and jackets and hats in there. And we make our way over in the boat to Luby Bay. And in Luby Bay, we're surrounded by these other boats. You can imagine as they've got this barge loaded with fireworks, and these things start lighting off. And the mountains around Priest Lake and that water like glass, all of that using, being used for the sound to just echo and just produce massive sound off the water. It's incredible. It draws quite a crowd. Now imagine boating away from there in the dark with 300 other boaters and it creates a tense moment. And you think of all the, of the tense moments and you think of all the, the packing and all the activity that goes into that ministry, that goes into the opportunity to have that one moment, that one uh, experience, that joy that's created, that joy that's created at that moment. Is it worth it? It's been worth it every year for about 10 years or so. Jesus' ministry was largely a ministry of work and pain and tense moments. He was the man of sorrows, according to Isaiah 53. His ministry faced rejection, hostility, the desertion of people who wanted to follow him. His Passion Week included whipping, scourging, a crown of thorns, a crucifixion, and even being forsaken by the Father. But do you know about the fireworks show in Jesus' ministry that caused his greatest joy. Would you be surprised to know that the Bible records the greatest moment of Jesus' earthly joy? Certainly, for the King of glory, every day of obedience to the Father was a day of joy. 
But I'm talking about an explosive moment, a fireworks moment of joy in the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's right there on the pages of your scripture in Luke chapter 10, if you've turned there already. I'm excited to share this moment with you today. I don't want you to miss sight of this week and the passion of our Christ this week. But I want you to know the cause of all of his suffering, which is also the cause of his greatest moment of joy. So today, with the backdrop of this ministry of agony right in front of us, we're going to consider the greatest joy of Jesus Christ. So you're at your Bibles there in Luke chapter 10. You're going to see that the Gospel of Luke records this moment of Jesus' greatest joy. The sermon title this morning is The Greatest Joy of Jesus Christ. And the aim this morning, what I want to, what I want to produce, what I want for you, the, the aim of the text is that you will see the greatest joy of Jesus Christ and that you will know what causes Jesus' greatest joy. My job is to explain this to you and we'll start by reading the text together. Let's begin for context just by reading in Luke 10, starting in verse 17. This is where we had a chance to preach a few weeks back. Read with me from 10:17. The 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. This was our text a few weeks back, and I said that at that time that this text is the greatest joy of a true disciple. But if we continue reading, the text unfolds the moment of the greatest joy of Jesus Christ. This first four verses is the kickoff of the fireworks show. These last four verses that we're going to talk about are the grand finale. Let's read those together now. Verse 21. At that very time... Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, And who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning privately to the disciples, he said, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them. And to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. The text reveals to us on this occasion Jesus' greatest earthly joy. The text will show us also, show us this, three Trinitarian perfections resulting in Jesus' greatest joy. These are three causes or three reasons that Jesus has this incredible time of rejoicing. They stir up in Jesus, these three Trinitarian perfections, they stir up in him superlative joy. Let's take a look at the first of these three Trinitarian perfections right after we dive into the context. I want to give you the background and paint this picture for you. We're flying into the middle of the Gospel of Luke. 
It'll be profitable to take a look and consider these are the 70 disciples that Jesus has sent out into service for him. He's got a mission for them. And they've completed the mission. They've, they've returned. What they were sent out to do was to preach the kingdom of God. And this in Judea to the south of Galilee. There are 70 disciples. Some versions say 72. Their job was to preach the kingdom, take nothing with them. They were to stay where they were received, to depart where they were rejected. They were to expect confrontation and reject any form of compensation except that maybe they might get bread or a warm bowl of soup. This was Jesus' version of Navy SEAL training for these men, buds for discipleships, if you will. This is an elite force to whom Jesus says, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So these are elite lambs, specially prepared and sent out by Jesus to preach the kingdom of God. And preach they did as ambassadors of his, preceding Jesus into the towns and cities which he will soon visit on his ministry south from Galilee, through Judea, and on his way toward Jerusalem, where his mind is set to ultimately go to the cross. These 70, they have a ministry not unlike, in fact, exactly identical to the ministry of the 12, whom you'll notice in chapter 9 were sent out by Jesus. They were sent out into the region of Galilee. Jesus was doing this with the 12 in in Galilee and the 70 in, in the south of Judea to make true disciples. He wanted to make true disciples. And then Jesus went and said this in, verse, in chapter 9, verse 23. He said this, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This statement by Christ caused an incredible thinning of the ranks. This was a dividing line. The fakers and the pretenders left at this moment. The 70 then were selected from the group that remained. They took their assignment, just like the 12. They went out, they came back, they reported to Christ. And as we just read, they gave great opportunity and occasion for Jesus to rejoice and to celebrate with them. Jesus used that opportunity to show them where true joy, the greatest joy of a true disciple comes from. As we looked at last time, that was in understanding salvation, understanding eternal security, understanding that if you're Christ and he's yours, that your name is recorded in heaven powerful opportunity for joy. So Jesus was rejoicing with them like the coach of a winning team. Jesus is seeing his perfect plan unfold. Turns into a firework show of pure joy. Pure joy for our Savior. Savior, This one moment. This is the only time that Luke uses this word to record Christ rejoicing like this. This is a firework show and it's nearing its end. You know, the rapid succession and the massive bombardments of all of the greatest of the fireworks cascading into this cacophony of, of noise and sound and, and just this incredible show. That's what's going on in our text. Verses 21 to 24, Jesus launches the conclusion of this mighty fireworks show exploding in the praise and power of God. Read with me again from the text in verse 21. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Here's where the fireworks show's finale begins. You have Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, rejoicing greatly. And I dare say this word here translated this way in the Greek does not describe accurately what's going on in the heart and mind and person of Christ. 
Jesus is exceedingly joyful. And as one commentator said, he's, he's having exuberant ecstasy. The only other place in scripture where, where it's recorded where someone has the same exuberant ecstasy, at least from Luke's writings, is when Mary, the mother of Jesus, rejoiced greatly after having been visited by an angel and being told that Christ would be inside of her in Luke 1.47. But I say this translation doesn't capture the full sense of Jesus' joy because Jesus was man and God and Mary was just a woman. This is Trinitarian rejoicing. The, the, the difference between the two is massive. The man of sorrows here is overwhelmed by these three Trinitarian perfections that are all colliding at one moment for him. Jesus, the second person, rejoicing in, with, by, and through the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, turning his, his mouth and his mind to words in abundance to express joy from his heart to God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. He's communicating directly to the supreme God of the universe. This is the moment of greatest joy in Jesus' whole earthly ministry, right here, as brought about by these three Trinitarian perfections. The first of which, the first Trinitarian perfection, is the Father's wisdom. The Father's wisdom. Read with me this portion of Luke 10, 21. Jesus goes into this praise of the Father and he says this. He says, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. Christ is speaking to the Father. He's not just speaking to him. He's praising him. I think some of your versions might say thanking him. This word means to agree, to confess, to praise, even to celebrate. Awkwardly, you think of celebrating. On the other side of this, Luke uses this same word to record Judas's betrayal in Luke 22, when Judas was in hearty agreement, even celebration with the chief priest at their plan to crucify Christ. Jesus here was in perfect agreement and celebration with God's plan. But you say, what plans? Well, clearly from the text, plans to hide things and to reveal things. Okay, well, from who is God hiding things and why? God is hiding things from the wise and intelligent. This is a comment directed specifically at the religious establishment folks of that day the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. In our day, we would look at Roman, the, the Roman Catholic Church and the priests. We have every opportunity to look into evangelical circles as well. Those who say they love God and, and yet they love to help soften the severity of the scriptures with regard to things like women teaching in the pulpit, the practice of homosexuality, the killing of babies in the womb. But those those wisdoms that these evangelicals would have, the wisdom of the priests, the wisdom of the Pharisees, it's not true wisdom, is it? It's not true wisdom. They have self-determined wisdom. They have self-proclaimed intelligence. And Jesus here is being extremely sarcastic. He knows how men feel about themselves. And he states their feelings as they would. These are the so-called wise and intelligent and from them, God has hidden things. 
And you ask, but what things are being hidden from these self-righteous people by God? Now we're on to something. What things are being hidden? What are these things? Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We need to talk about these things. And we need to let scripture unfold some of the ideas that go around these things. Because these things are the fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ and everything concerning his person and deity. These things are the manifold wisdom of God in the mystery of Jesus Christ. Paul in Colossians 2.2, he says, The knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's where we're headed with these things. But let Paul speak more to us this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look down at verse 18 and, and follow along as I read to you what these things are. These things. Chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, quoting from Isaiah 29, I will destroy the, wise, the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God has hidden spiritual truth from men. That's what these things are. God has hidden relationship with him from men to protect his holiness, his righteousness, this started back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. They were kicked out for their rebellion. But God has planned greater glory and joy in relationship with him by the power of his grace. That's where we're going. By revealing spiritual truth, the mystery of Christ to little children, even babies. Inevitably, someone will ask, but why does God bring some to saving knowledge while others perish in their sins? The answer to this question is remarkably simple. For his own glory, that's why. And because of his holiness. A beloved Christian historian, Ian Murray, he says this, listen carefully. Wrath is not a passion in God. Wrath is the unchanging response of holiness to the monstrosity of sin. Sin is rebellion to the holiness and perfection of God. God is perfectly holy. He cannot and will not live in or near sin. On the contrary, men are full of sin and are fully rebels against God. And I dare say this to you. God did not sit down 
with humanity before the foundations of the world in a cosmic boardroom and come up with an ultimate glory and joy strategy. This was not glory by committee, nor is it joy by democracy. You see, God is a king, and as a king, he rules righteously. He rules as he wishes over all of his subjects. And and not only is God a king, but he's also the creator. So it makes sense that he gets to choose who and what his creation are. God has declared that entrance into his kingdom will be by invitation only. You see, you don't get to RSVP. God's not taking applications. This isn't first come, first serve. It's not like the buffet you're going to go to for lunch. Party crashers are not welcomed. You can look at the dinner guest in Matthew 22:11 to see that. You must have the golden ticket. You must be invited. You must have received from God a free gift, a free gift we call grace, the gift of grace. That's the golden ticket. And what about these invitees? Is exceptional? What about these people that have been given this? What about these babies? What's exceptional about them? Well, as I'm looking out into an audience of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and I know of your salvation because I know the work that's been done in you, I can say this about you and me. What's spectacular about us? What's exceptional about us? Nothing. Nothing's exceptional about us. This gift is turned over to babies, infants, the helpless children, those who are without achievement, without assets, without education, reputation, or education, or experience for that matter. They are undeserving, know-nothings, who only possess this, total inability. That's what they possess. God is not praising ignorance by doing this, but blessing those whom he has humbled. This is the wisdom of God, which really upsets and aggravates the minds of mortal men, but totally thrills Jesus to the core, as this moment indicates. This is the doctrine of election, and Jesus loves it. Jesus highly affirms it. This doctrine of election demonstrates the Trinitarian perfection that is the Father's will and the Father's wisdom which is the first cause of of Jesus' greatest joy. How do we know this? Look back at the scriptures. Verse 1021, Jesus' summary statement says this. He says, Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight to do the hiding and to do the revealing. This yes, Father, is the highest affirmation and assent to what Jesus had previously said. Jesus is saying, Yay and yes, indeed, Father. Literally, the Greek here can be translated this way. For in this way, pleasure was in front of you. Pleasure was before your face. To do it this way. Jesus here is acknowledging the Father's wisdom in the plan of salvation. He is marveling at God's work in restoration and reconciliation of rebels through the work of regeneration. This is well-pleasing to the Father because it accords with holiness and righteousness. As such, the wisdom of the Father is the first Trinitarian perfection that creates Jesus' greatest joy. It results in, in Jesus exalting the Father profoundly here in this text, like in the beginning of the end. of of the greatest fireworks show that you've ever seen. 
And what fireworks do we need to add next to create this or continue this explosive celebration in the mind of Christ? The second Trinitarian perfection after the Father's wisdom is number two in your notes, the Son's will. The Father's wisdom, number two, the Son's will. The Son's will. Let's read the text from Luke 10, 22. It says this. This is Christ exalting his Father. He, he makes a, a statement here. He says this. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Christ is still praying to his Father, and this is a powerful declaration of praise and adoration coming in the form of a direct statement of fact, and it is uniquely tied to this moment in history. Where are we at in the moment? What's going on? The 70 are standing around him. The 70 men have come back and reported to Christ. And Christ is celebrating with them. And then he turns into this massive exaltation and praise of the Father, overwhelmed with joy. From this text, I want to draw three ideas, three essentially words to your attention. Look at the text and, and look at these words. Let them pop out to you. All things, no one, and anyone. Concerning the comment about all things, this is a strong claim of deity. He is calling himself by saying this, the son of God. Using these words, my father, it's a strong declaration. In addition to these words, all things, he is saying that he has total power, total control over all things. How many things? All things. This would include total dominion over the physical realm, and the spiritual realm, all things, all-inclusive. There's not one atomic particle outside of Jesus' control. So this is a deity claim, and it's a power claim. He claims to have the perfections of God and to be essentially the same as God. This statement is amazing in and of itself. It's a shocker. But look what follows. Consider the amazement that follows. Here is Jesus, and he's holding up his deity in one hand. And on the other hand, he's holding up all the power that's been given to him as a result of his deity. These two things he's holding up. And in the mind of Christ, what does his mind immediately turn to and to begin to consider? Amazingly, Jesus picks up a conversation about who knows God. Amazingly, Jesus wants to talk about the no ones and the any ones and what these can't know and what these will be given to know. Amazingly and quickly, the power claims and the deity claim turn into a conversation about salvation of people like you and me. Is that amazing? It's incredible. To have this thing going on, a deity claim and a power claim, and all of a sudden he wants to talk about you and your salvation? The salvation of men is on his mind? You know, we discussed election. It was in point one. We said Jesus was thrilled with election because election shows the Father's wisdom. Wisdom to hide salvation from the proud and offer it only to the humble. So why is Jesus so worked up here about election? 
Within 20 words of making the power claim and the claim to full deity, Jesus is rejoicing over the power given to him by the Father regarding the salvation of men. He's, rego- he's rejoicing over the Son's will. And especially on his mind at this moment are the 70 disciples. The ambassadors, the elite lambs who survived Jesus' Evangelism 101 course. These are not bandwagon fanboys. They didn't flee and cut and run and leave like the others. They stayed with him. These have endured through the trials of Jesus' agonizing ministry. You know, I I dare say Jesus believes and knows that these men are going to go with him all the way to the cross. And then in Acts 2, they're going to receive the Holy Spirit permanently. He knows that about these men. How did they do it? In what strength did these men survive where others failed? Why didn't they flake out? Like all of the others in Jesus' ministry, John 6, 66. It was a bad day in Jesus' ministry when many men just took off and left because the things that he was saying were too hard to hear. How'd they stick with it? Was it grit? Determination? Willpower? Is that what they had? John MacArthur says this, there is no capacity in fallen, sinful human beings to see the light of the gospel and believe savingly on their own. These men didn't save themselves because all men are unable to save themselves. Jesus is rejoicing that he is able to save men, specifically the 70 that are standing right in front of him at this moment. That he told them that their names are written in the book of life in heaven, which means that he must have already willed the will of the Father because it was written in heaven. He willed for their salvation. And having previously willed their salvation, God, through the Spirit, has now regenerated these Men, these are 70 regenerate men. These 70 plus 11 of the 12 disciples are a few of the anyones to whom Christ willed to reveal himself. These are a few of the anyones. You know, the Bible only knows two kinds of men. You can look at Psalm 1 and you can see that, but here in our text it just so clearly cuts it in half. Look at verses 21 and 22. See these things. Wise and intelligent versus infants. No ones versus any ones. Those to whom things are hidden and those to whom things are revealed. The independent and the totally dependent. The able and the unable. The powerful and the powerless. Jesus' prayer to the Father leaves no room for for the any ones to choose him. The any ones won't choose him. On the contrary, the any ones are not those who choose, but those who respond to Christ revealing himself. This is like sheep who all of a sudden hear the voice of their great shepherd and come. But the great shepherd has to speak, doesn't he? Love for God comes in response to God's love graciously bestowed on you. Jesus Declaration is so clear. Salvation of humanity begins in the mind of deity, not in the mind of humanity. 
Can I tell you what a special treasure this is to me? It's a total thrill for Jesus. It's a total thrill for Jesus, and it thrills me just the same. To know that absolutely nothing in me, no thought, no strength, no action of mine that I undertook, was able to begin my salvation. Nothing. Empty. Void. Bankrupt. That I am fully saved, standing here, as a result of work that no hand of humanity could touch. I'm here because of the God-man, Jesus Christ, revealing himself to me. And I'm so thankful for this, that he did it all. He paid for all my sins and he did all of the revealing. This created a firework moment in my life. Fireworks when he first did it. And then fireworks about eight or nine years after when I pushed through my Arminian belief system and understood what the scriptures said, not what I wanted them to say. Truth and joy go hand in hand. And my joy from that second essential salvation, although I believe my salvation was clear at first, my joy has only increased tremendously because I understand the truth of what the scripture is saying. And if you're like me, we're reasonable people. And we believe that the more truth that we hold, that must equate to how much joy that we have. And the level of indication of joy we have must also indicate how much truth we actually hold on to. Yet there are those who want to fight this point. They want room for salvation to begin in the finite mind of men and not in the infinite mind of God. Inevitably, somebody will come and they'll say, but Pastor Oliver, what about John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. To this I say you're exactly right. John 3.16. Brothers and sisters, this is the language of drawing. This is the language of calling. This is the language of the, of the great shepherd. You've got to be an anyone before you are a whosoever. You've got to be an anyone before you are a whosoever. There's more drawing language in the scripture. It's all over the place. There's a parallel passage to the one that we're reading in the gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 11:25 to 30, you get the exact same words that we're reading today. But Jesus concludes it with a different set of words that Matthew picked up and he recorded that Jesus had said that Luke didn't. I want to share those with you right now. You can turn there if you like. It's Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Jesus, Jesus says these things. But, and, and before I read this, maybe he's calling you home today. Maybe you need these verses. Maybe the great shepherd has already kicked off something in your heart. Listen to these words. Listen to what he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. He says this. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, friend, you have to be in anyone before you can be part of the all. 
You have to be in anyone before you can be a part of the all. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Add to that Ephesians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 3, and the question boils down to this, what can a dead man do to save his soul? A dead man can do nothing to save himself. Jesus is thrilled and overwhelmed with great joy. This is a moment of big fireworks for him. He's got his claim of deity. He's got his claim of power. He's got the understanding of the Father's wisdom and the understanding of the power of his will to affect salvation in humanity. And he is bursting at the seams with this. He's so thrilled that he's the one that ignites the salvation plan in the hearts of men. Jesus perfectly wills people into relationship. His Father calls and draws them. If you need another analogy for this, I would give you this one. What celebrity have you ever known? Hollywood's just down the street. The San Jose Sharks play right up the street the other way. You might see their movies or watch their hockey games, but you don't know them. To know them, to know the celebrity, they would need to reveal themselves to you. They would need to commune with you and share themselves with you. Have you to their parties? Have you to their house? Have you on their vacations? Talk with you intimately about their thoughts, wants, and desires. Jesus here says, for anyone to know him, his will must include a desire to reveal himself to that person. John 3.16. John 3.16 is exactly what I need to hear after Jesus has performed heart surgery on me. You know, all of humanity needs these verses, but they all won't come because of the prideful, boastful, wicked pattern of sin that envelops a human heart. The 70 were regenerated by the Father and the Spirit, and they're standing in front of Christ who willed their salvation. And at this point, we see two of the three perfections of of deity that are creating Jesus' greatest moment of joy. And the grand finale of the fireworks is propelled by this third Trinitarian perfection. Point number three in your notes, this third Trinitarian perfection. After the Father's wisdom and the Son's will, we see the Spirit's work. The Spirit's work. Let's look at these last two verses together. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that not many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Had these men come to a special knowledge from their own study? Did they gain access to a secret vault of wisdom? No. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. He opens blind eyes. He opens deaf ears to illuminate the mind that it might delight in the things of Christ. Christ here has turned privately to these men in his care whom he loves, whom he was He's willed from all eternity to have eternal life with him. Their names are written in the book of life and he's saying to them, blessed are you. Blessed. That word blessed. Man, that's loaded. Blessed are you. 
Blessing is from the work of the Holy Spirit and Christ knows it and he says to them, blessed are you because you see things now like I see things. You have a set of eyes behind your eyes that's letting you see things that you otherwise didn't see when you showed up. You see like me. That's what he's saying to them. This is the third Trinitarian perfection, the spirit working behind those eyes that causes blessing and is resulting in Jesus' greatest joy. And you say to me, Oliver, these two verses don't say the words Holy Spirit in them. How can point three have anything to do with the Holy Spirit if he's not in the text? And to that I say, he's all over this text. He's all over this text. He's over it, through it, in it. He's all around it. Go back to verse 17 and look with me. Look look at these words. Do you see the words returned, joy, subjected? That's all the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at 19. Do you see the words authority and nothing? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 20. If I were to summarize this verse 20, I would say this. Don't marvel at the external works you can do. Rather, marvel at the internal work done to you. The work of the Holy Spirit, a work that is both internal and has all kinds of external manifestations. For more proof that the Holy Spirit is in this text, look at verse 21. There he is. His name shows up. The Holy Spirit's causing Jesus to rejoice greatly in God's wisdom, the Son's will, and the Spirit's work of salvation. And then look at verse 22. Do you see the word revealed? That is the Holy Spirit. He is the revealer, the eye-opener, the agent of heart change, the author of regeneration, able to remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that truly beats for Christ. So is the Holy Spirit in this text? You better believe it. It's so clear that he is all over this text. And you look at verse 23, and the coach, Jesus Christ, turns to his men and he says, Blessed are your eyes. And I'll, I'll note with you in the text, it doesn't say, I'm so proud of you for working so hard. You figured it all out on your own. Congratulations, we had to give you this gift of the Holy Spirit. Good job, men. Rather, Jesus says to them, blessed are your eyes. Because Jesus sees and knows the power behind those eyes, the agent of salvation has come. The Holy Spirit lives behind those eyes. He's thrilled He's so excited. The fireworks going off in Christ are incredible and they're exploding all over with these Trinitarian perfections. The Holy Spirit's there. I give you this analogy of the Holy Spirit. It's like playing pitch and catch, right? The Holy Spirit empowers the thrower to throw and the message that's being thrown is the Holy Spirit's message and the receiver is powered by the Holy Spirit to catch and listen and understand and receive. Do you see that? The Holy Spirit's playing pitch and catch with himself. Do you know what's going on right now? What's going on right now? The Holy Spirit's working through me, giving me a chance to study in his word all week long, and I'm taking his message, and I'm throwing it out to you. And if you're receiving it, it's coming to you in power and truth, with clarity and joy, and it's increasing your joy. Do you see that? That same pitch and catch is going on right now. And in this passage, it's like Jesus and the Holy Spirit are playing pitch and catch with fireworks. They're so excited because they're able to do this through men, through men, through unregenerate, wicked, sin-filled men to turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Finally, the coach Jesus, he's so thrilled here with his elite lambs. 
powered by the Holy Spirit. He shares a historical perspective with these men in an effort to help them to see just how profoundly blessed they actually are. He says to them in verse 24, Many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. You can imagine the names as it would go through your mind as Hebrews chapter 11 captures them so clearly. Names, men like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham. Time would fail us if we were to mention David, Saul, Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. Hebrews 11.13 says of these men, it says this, all of these men died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. You see, they had salvation through faith that looked forward. They didn't have the satisfaction of seeing the promises fulfilled, but yet now the revelation has been made complete in Christ. Now the mystery of the ages has been revealed. Now these men are beholding the wondrous mystery face to face. How incredibly privileged are these men. The prophets of old wished that they had known Messiah. These disciples are are looking at the Messiah, the promised Messiah. They're getting the opportunity to be caught up with him in this explosion of these Trinitarian perfections, focused on the, the glorious grace of God in this saving act of regeneration. You see, it's only our triune God. It's only our triune God who has the perfect ability to effect salvation in a free will being enslaved to sin. And what is glorious and precious to Jesus Christ and God the Father is the opportunity exclusively with which salvation by grace is offered. Sharing in triune joy is by invitation only. And so I'm asking you today, friend, has the Lord of heaven and earth sent you an invitation? Are you burdened to know the crucified man who can pay for your sin? Is the pain and weight of your sin crushing you? Does your heart need relief from guilt and shame? If yes is your answer to any of these questions, I plead with you, come find me, find one of the elders, and talk with us about what's happening in your heart and in your life. We would love to see Jesus Christ bring salvation to your desperate soul and cause more joy, great joy, for all who are in fellowship with him. But for those of us who are walking in great joy of knowing your eternal salvation, What does the greatest joy of Jesus mean for you? What are you supposed to do with this glorious fireworks moment, this grand finale of fireworks, of of Jesus rejoicing with all of his joy? What does it mean for you? Do you take this and and tuck it away into your back pocket and and feel more self-righteous as you leave, exalting God for your election, but not having any obedience that demonstrates that you really are his? No way. This truth is meant to perpetually humble you. 
It should cause you to realize that God has never needed you to glorify himself from the very beginning. God didn't get a bargain in saving you. It, shouldn't make you realize, it should make you realize how incredibly rich the love of God is that he would even choose to extend it to you and to me. So how do we respond to the greatest joy of, of Jesus Christ? With great joy we respond in knowing that salvation is purely a work of God, that you are not your own, that you were bought at a price. And then you do as Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, of your election. Do not walk as the Gentiles do, following the course of this world, but press on toward maturity in your walk. Press on toward the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Be found walking in obedience because you didn't affect your salvation. Jesus did it to you for him. It demands obedience. I marvel at how many Christians believe that they've volunteered into Jesus' army rather than that they're slaves of Christ. Which are you? Are you a volunteer in Jesus' service today or are you his slave? Which is it? From what we just read, my understanding is that you're slaves of Christ if he is yours and you are his. And you are missing the greatest joy to think otherwise. You're missing the greatest joy. Because friend, your day of tribulation is coming. Your great day of trial is at hand. And I ask you, what will sustain you? Where will joy come from in that trial? If Christ has revealed himself to you, your joy is found in this. Your salvation has already been secured in the wisdom of the Father, the will of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. It has nothing to do with how weak or how strong your hand is. It's completely outside of your strength. My hope is that you see that truth and joy go hand in hand and that you see the greatest cause for joy is knowing that salvation is secured by Jesus Christ alone to the glory of God the Father. Will you pray with me? Father, I look forward to the one day when our faith will be made sight, when we will behold the wondrous mystery face to face. But Father, I realize that to have that joy of Christ has already been given by staring at the marvelous truths right here in Scripture. What you have purposed and what you have done, no one can take away from me can't be taken away from anyone in this congregation. We praise you for that work. Lord, we pray that it would only yield more joy and rejoicing in us and that that truth would yield its other necessary result, our obedience. We pray this for your glory, for your good, knowing that you have done so incredibly much for us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.